the harlot and the king, and you're going to see uh, kind of why it's called that here in a minute. Uh, but as I start it, uh, looking at this, and I'm going to start you off with some really, really uplifting statistics, okay? Um, these are really great statistics. One-third of American mar marriages end in divorce, and that holds true for Christians and non-Christians. Uh, in fact, when it comes to divorce, the, the margin of error uh, is, is the percentage of difference between someone who says I'm a Christian and someone who says I'm not. So basically, there's no difference in divorce between people who say they follow Jesus and those who don't. But one-third of American marriages end in divorce. Uh, just one-fifth of Americans trust the government. Um, that means we expect politicians to lie and break promises. The, our expectation is that they would lie to us. Uh, 80% of the people would say, yeah, I, I don't trust them. Uh, One-third of American children grow up without the presence of their biological father. So one-third, one out of every three kids that you run into, they, run out, they, they grow up without the presence of their biological father. Now, the point behind this is that breaking promises has become commonplace. So commonplace that we tend to marginalize it, but God does not. So as we've gone through this, uh, in chapter 4, we saw that the key word there was iniquity. And iniquity means to be twisted or bent, irritated or confused. Uh, and then in chapter 5, what we looked at last week, uh, rebel was the key word. And that's to be obstinate or uncooperative in attitude. Um, and then you have actions that follow that. So my attitude is I'm not going to listen, I'm not going to pay attention. And then the actions follow that. Uh, the key word this morning in chapter 6 is harlot, and it means to abandon someone for intimacy with another, uh, and literally to sell yourself into that. Uh, but that's, that's one of the key words to grab hold of here, and it's to, to abandon someone for intimacy with another. Um, and what we're going to see is this is the, the issue that God has with His people, that they've, they've abandoned intimacy with Him and sold themselves into intimacy with another. And that is the issue that he has with them. Um, the word that you would use, that, that we see used for that regularly, is the word idolater or idolatry. So someone has, they've, they've taken God out of his rightful place and put some, someone else there. Now there's a part of that within God that he deserves that place. He deserves to be the most high. It's one of the names that, that we have for him, Elohim, the most high. Um, but what people do is they remove him from the most high and they put themselves or something else in that most high position. And that's idolatry, to remove God from his place. But also built into the meaning that we get from this chapter within idolatry is that we are intended, we're made to have intimacy with God. That's what he designed us for, was an intimate relationship with him. And what people do is they, 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 they leave the intimacy that they have with God, or that at least that's intended to be there, and they sell themselves to another. And that's what idolatry is. So we'll go through this bit by bit. Uh, verses 1 through 7 here, we see that God has a serious grievance against his people. They are idolaters. So verse 1 of chapter 6 of Ezekiel. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them and say, Mountains of Israel, listen to the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys, Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you, and I will destroy your high places. Uh, to set your face towards something, this is a, it's an expression of ridicule. Um, this, is a, this is a statement of, uh, I, have, I have nothing good to say about you. In fact, when I look at you, I can only see something that, does not des that, that deserves ridicule. Okay? It's an expression of, I'm against you. Um, and really, it's because they've set themselves against him. 
high places. Uh, these are places of worship set out, set up throughout the land. As you see, he says he's, he's prophesying against the mountains. Uh, he's prophesying against the hills, the ravines, the valleys. Uh, these were places of worship that were set up outside of the temple. Okay, So the temple was set up, and that was supposed to be the main place that people would go to worship. But the culture that they lived within, the Canaanites, they would set up, they would set up high places throughout uh, altars and different places where they would uh, offer sacrifices and incense. They'd set those up throughout the land. Okay? And what the Jewish people did is they had sort of embraced that mode of worship. Now, God said, I want you to worship me at the temple, right? That was the main place where that was supposed to happen. And there was, there was intended to be structure around that, right? One of the groups of, one of the tribes of Israel, the, the Levites, they were set aside to lead the people into worshiping God so that they could know how to worship and, and uh, uh, understand God for who he truly is based upon the, the texts of the Bible, okay? But what the people had done is they left that and they'd gone to these high places. Uh, they were usually set up on a mountain, um, but uh, sometimes they were in a valley or a ravine, um, and they were often under a tree, probably for shade, because uh, it gets hot there. But uh, um, they, had, they had rejected, let's worship God in the temple, and let's do this on our own, wherever we choose to do so, however we choose to do so, okay? So they had, they had left the mode of worship that God had laid out, and gone to another. And what that caused was idolatry. Instead of worshiping God for who he truly was, they were worshiping some other gods. Okay? So verse 4 says, So your altars will become desolate, and your incense altars will be smashed. And I will make your slain fall in front of your idols. I will also lay dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols, and I will scatter your bones around your altars. In all your dwellings, cities will become waste, and your high places will become desolate that your altars may become waste and desolate. Your idols may be broken and brought to an end. Your incense altars may be cut down, and all of your works may be blotted out. The slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Uh, so that, that phrase, you will know that I am the Lord, he's actually going to say something along those lines, they will know or you will know that I am the Lord, four different times in this chapter. Um, and why he's saying that, how would, how would they equate him smashing their incense altars and how would he equate them ruining their cities? How would, he, how would they look at that and go, oh, this must be from God, right? The reason they would know that is because we've talked about this before. If you haven't read Leviticus chapter 26 yet to understand Ezekiel, I encourage you to do so this afternoon or whatever, you get some time. Sit down and read Leviticus chapter 26. Because God lays out to Moses in this Mosaic covenant, he says, if you obey and you follow my commands and you, and you follow me as God, there's going to be these blessings. If you reject me and enter into idolatry, I'm going to discipline you. There's going to be consequences. And so the reason that they would know that this is from God is because he's already told them this is what he's going to do. He said, if you disobey, I will act in this way. And so when these actions come to pass, people will go, oh, this is truly from God. He's using the nation of Babylon to, uh, to fulfill his covenant uh, promises that if we disobeyed him, he would do these things. So that's how they would know that he is the Lord. So, but the issue that we see here is, is, is in this chapter is that, that he has against his people is that they become idolatrous. Um, now, idolatry might seem far and distant, right? Who worships false gods? I, I don't know about you. I don't have any wooden uh, little gods in my house. I don't have anything made out of stone. I've never visited a high place where I knelt down and offered a sacrifice to a false god. I've never done any of that. But if you analyze the appeal of ba Baal 
and Asherah. Those were the two gods of the Canaanites. Uh, it's possible to see that uh, their hold continues down to the present day, even, even though their form has changed. Baal was the storm god, the chief god of the pantheon, and a god, the god of power and fertility, who, if appeased, could deliver victory in battle, and in peacetime, uh, his, reign was so, his reign was vital to the cultivation of the Canaanite civilization. Ashura, uh, his consort, was the goddess of fertility, perhaps better known as her Greek, in her Greek form Aphrodite. Uh, by worshiping these gods, the Israelites sought to impose order on the chaos of the world around them and invoke the aid of a higher power on their behalf. The idols promised power and security. In addition, the sexual practices of ritual prostitution that were probably associated with the fertility cult needed little theological justification. In other words, they could do what they wanted sexually because they were worshiping this other god. Put into contemporary vernacular, Baal and Asherah uh, were in effect the patron saints of sex, war, and rock and roll, promising to deliver a potent mixture of satisfaction of the desires of power, success, and pleasure. Okay, So we might say, gosh, I've never worshipped Baal and I've never wor worshipped Asherah, but the fact of the matter is our culture does. Our culture does worship these things. Um, and we can be drawn in to worship these things as well. Uh, you know, the pressures on us are the world, the flesh, and the devil. And, and those things are things that many, many people fall prey to. Um, so, and then what we see in verses 4 through 7 is the consequences of idolatry, they, reap a, or they, they are a reap and sow equation. In other words, you, you do this, you're going to receive this. As the people of Judah gave themselves to the God of the Canaanites, they received what false, false gods have to give, death. There's no actual life in them. The people have pursued life apart from God, and God is actually granting them their life's pursuit. If you're going to pursue a life apart from me, then you're going to reap what you sow, and you're going to get what comes from a life apart from me. And what we see is that's death. As the people leave God for intimacy with another, it's not that they don't experience intimacy, but that intimacy they experience is one that takes from them rather than builds them up. And that's what idols do. It's not that you don't experience intimacy. It's not that you don't experience a closeness uh, with whatever your idol is. It's that that idol does not build you up. Instead, it takes from you, okay? And it doesn't give you life, but it actually takes your life, okay? And so that's the key distinction here is that it's not that, it's not that when we go for an idol that we don't experience some sense of intimacy, some sense of closeness with the thing that we're pursuing, the God, the whatever God we put in God's place. It's not that we don't become close with it. It's that you do become close with it and it takes from you rather than gives to you, okay? So whatever you put in God's place, if you put anything aside from Him in the, in the place of the Most High, uh, you, will, you can experience intimacy with that thing, that person, that ideology, uh, whatever it is, but that, that, that thing will not build you up. Instead, it will take from you, right? So the way that he expresses this is he says he's going to lay the dead bodies in front of the idols. I will scatter your bones around the altars. These, these places of worship were not places where life was received. They were places where death was received. And what God is showing the people at this point is that's what's been happening all along. You've never received life in these places. And then he gives them a very physical, very real, very uh, probably crushing picture of just how much life these, these idols have been stealing. And then in verse 8 through 10, uh, we see here that idolatry is equated, or idolatry is equated with adultery in God's eyes. 
God goes so far as to say his people have played the harlot. They have sold the most intimate part of their soul to another. God is a self-proclaimed jealous God and will not settle for sharing his own with another. Right? He says, I'm a jealous God. You'll have no idols before me. You'll put no one before me. He self-proclaimed this, but it's not a jealous like a, the weird jealous boyfriend thing. It's a jealous in that he's stating, I, I've created you and you're mine and I will not share you with another. Right? He alone has the position of the Most High and when we remove him from that, he says, no, that's not what's best. It's not what's best for you, and it doesn't recognize the, the authority and the grace and the love and the power that I have in your life as your creator and the one who longs to bless you. Like a bridegroom who has been betrayed by his bride, God has been hurt, literally broken into pieces by the actions of his people. Verse 8, however, I will leave a remnant, for you will have those who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me in the nations to which they have been carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous heart, which, which turned away from me, and by their eyes which have played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict disaster on them. Uh, he talks about how he's going to leave a remnant. There's going to be a group of people through which he's going to continue to uh, work out the promises of the Mosaic Covenant. He's made a promise to the, the nation of, of Israel, and he's going to continue to bless them. He's going to continue to use them to reveal himself. Um, but they are, the way he's going to do that is they're going to come to a point where they realize we have acted against him. And this is an amazing verse, verse 9. If you read no other verse in this entire chapter, just grab hold of this one. Uh, then those, who, those of you who have escaped will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which have turned away from me and by their eyes which have played the harlot after their idols. That's an amazing statement. That God, that God made himself vulnerable enough to love us to the place where he could be hurt when we betray him. That's an amazing statement. And just think about that, that God loves you enough, the, the most high, the creator of all, the most powerful being who needs nothing, yet wants relationship with us, made himself vulnerable enough that when we pursue someone other than him, he could be hurt by it. God loves us that much that he would make himself vulnerable in that way. And it says, I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts which have turned away from me and their eyes which have played the harlot after their idols. It's that statement of you're intended for intimacy with me and you've rejected the closeness that I want to have with you and you've pursued it with another. You can imagine that within a, you know, the bond of a covenant, the bond of marriage. I don't know if you've ever seen that happen in a marriage where one of the partners, they come together and they say, till death do us part. And they come together and they say, we're one. And they come together and they say, we're created for intimacy with, e with, with each other. And then they reach a point where one of them or both of them, usually one of them says, I no longer want intimacy with you. And instead, I'm going to tear myself apart from you. 
And, 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 and the scriptures claim that when you come together in that covenant bond of marriage, that you're joined as one. You're not two people, but you're one individual. And when, when, the, when the bond, when that covenant is broken, you don't have two holes, you have two halves. And that is the same kind of hurt that God is saying he experiences when we pursue another. When we reject the covenant promises, the covenant intimacy that he has that he desires with us uh, and, we, and, we, and we break apart from him and go for another, he's saying, I experience that same type of hurt. That's amazing that God would make himself that vulnerable. Now, based upon the Mosaic Covenant in Leviticus 26, what he says he's going to do with the nation of Israel is he says he's, he's going to, he's going to, if you read it word for word, you'd go, wow, this sounds like Ezekiel is quoting it. He may well have been. Um, but verse 10, he's, he's promised that he's going to discipline them, discipline them, that there's going to be a cost for idolatry. And in verse 10, again, he says, Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. Now, this is, this is an amazing group of verses here. This is an amazing set of verses, the depth of, to which God loves us and hates our sin. Paul put it this way in Romans eleven twenty two: Behold the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness. If you continue in His kindness, otherwise you will be cut off. One of the things that you see about faith within the Bible is that genuine faith is always continuing faith. There's no one that should say, I believed, I followed Him at one point in time, and I truly had faith in Him, and then at another point in time, later on down the road, I did, I'm not following Him. Genuine biblical faith is always continuing faith. It's a gift from God. He moves us to trust Him and follow Him, but it's an action over the course of a lifetime, not a moment or a season. Okay? Genuine faith is always continuing faith. God is truly the God of the greatest and kindest intentions towards us. Intentions so kind that He would be broken into pieces uh, when His love is rejected and portrayed for another. Uh, that's, that's what the word literally means. Uh, he says, I've been hurt by their adulterous heart. The word hurt in the Hebrew is literally broken into pieces. But these kind intentions are commingled with severity, which means uh, to turn away from completely or to have nothing to do with. Uh, God's, God's kindest and best intentions of, close, of closeness with His people uh, has been rebuffed for another. They pushed Him away and they said, we, want, we don't want closeness with you, but we want closeness with another. He's broken into pieces over this. Um, he gives people over to the pursuit of their idols, uh, which in turn brings them ruin. And, and then because His promises are so strong, He will act in severity towards that. They, will, they, 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 they receive what they've asked for. But there are those survivors. He says he's going to keep a remnant. And they will look upon God's gracious and merciful salvation. They will repent and enjoy salvation in him. They will know that he is the Lord and the only one capable of saving them. And this is the gospel in Ezekiel chapter 6. This is, this is the gospel of Jesus in this chapter. That there are, those, there are many, many, many who reject him. And there are many, many, many who will receive the due of their, of their actions and of their belief and their betrayal towards him. But there's also those that he's going to keep and he's going to pour his grace and his mercy out on. And they will look at what he has done and they will say, he has been gracious, he has been merciful, he has saved us. This is the gospel. 
Because it's only through God's grace, it's only through his mercy, it's only through the cross of Jesus that we're saved. It's only through his resurrection that we receive new life. And it's only looking back on that that we can realize what God has done for us and his love for us. So we see the gospel in this chapter, the kindness and severity of God. And if you look at what happens to the people, uh, we realize that, that Jesus took this at the cross. The, the same type of punishment that the people receive here, the same type of discipline, the same kind of uh, reap and sow for idolatry, God, Jesus actually takes what we deserve. We've reaped what Jesus received on the cross. And he goes there as our substitution, and he dies in our place. It's the gospel in this chapter. But the chapter doesn't end here, and the gospel doesn't stop there. Eventually, the idols who charm, deceive, and destroy will be ruined so that those who abandon their creator and sell themselves to the charms of power, pleasure, possessions, and prestige will know that he is the Lord. Verse 11 through 14, Both the harlot and her many loves will be destroyed. The idolater and the idolaties are, excuse me, the idolater and the idols will become what they bring, death. Verse 11, thus says the Lord God, clap your hand, stomp your foot, and say, alas, because of all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, which will fall by the sword, famine, and plague. He who is far off will die by plague, and he who is near will fall by the sword, and he who remains and is besieged will die by the famine. Thus I will spend my wrath on them. We see these, these, these three things over and over again. There's plague, there's uh, death by sword, and there's death by famine. These are the three things that God is going to use in order to judge his nation. Then they will know that I am the Lord when they're slain or among their idols, around their altars, on every high hill, and the tops of the mountains, under every green tree, and every leafy oak, the places where they offered soothing aroma, soothing aroma to their idols. So throughout all their habitations, I will stretch out my hand against them and make the land more desolate and the waste than the wilderness of Diblah. That's a place nearby that's a desert. Uh, thus, they will know that I am the Lord. And what we see here uh, is that we have a tendency to fall for the illusion. God's going God's to judge these things, but what we see from the people and what we see within our own lives is we have a tendency to fall for the illusion. In the end, God does not judge Judah for their actions, but for their idolatry. He doesn't look at them and he say, because you've committed sexual immorality, you're, you're done for. Because you've, uh, because you've sacrificed your children to these idols, you're going you're gonna to receive discipline. Because you've done this action, you're going to receive this thing. In the end, it's because they've, they've rejected relationship with him that they receive judgment. Okay. In the end, it's not you did this and you did that and you did the other thing and on this side of the scale, or on, on whatever, on this side of the scale, we got all these things that are weighing it down in the negative and on this side of the scale, maybe you have enough good things that will balance it out or maybe enough good things that will lower it so that you can make it in. It, th this is not what we're talking about. We're talking about did you want relationship with me or not? Did you seek intimacy with me or did you not? That's what it boils down to. I made you for intimacy with me, and I long to have that closeness of relationship with you. With, with you. Did you, did you embrace it, or did you reject it? And what we find is that actions follow those two things. If you reject intimacy with God, and you place some, something else in His place, and you follow after it, you, your actions will not coincide with God's law. 
If you put God in his rightful place, your actions will follow that. Okay? Now, that's a moment-by-moment -moment decision for Christians, but it's also a one-time place where you said, I am seeking after him, and my heart of hearts says, nothing else gets placed in the Most High. Nothing else. Nothing else. Nothing else gets placed in the Most High. Only him. Okay? I'm seeking after him. I want intimacy with him. He's told me that that's what he's created me for, and I will not hurt him in that way. The same way that I wouldn't hurt my bride in that way. I would never take her out of her place as my wife and put something else there. The same way I would never take God out of his place and put something else there. I will seek intimacy with him alone. But we have a tendency to fall for the illusion. All that they thought they could find life in, all that they thought could save them, all that they thought they had placed their hope in amounted to a pile of rocks and bones. Think about that. Everything that they thought, this is life, this is hope, this is security, this will, this will, this will, this will make us happy, this will make us content, this will give us a good life, this will give us a good experience, this will give us fill in the blank. All that it amounted to was a pile of rocks and bones. It seemed pretty good in the moment, and perhaps it was good for the moment, but it's only a shadow of what the eternal God had to offer them. Remember, so they removed him, and they put something else. I don't want intimacy with you. I want intimacy with another. And what that added up to was a pile of rocks and bones. As C.S. Lewis puts it, he says, If indeed we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. There's this ultimate intimacy that God has made us for. And we say, eh, this one's good enough. The language in, idol or the language in Ezekiel that, uh, that he uses for idol, um, it's a combination of Hebrew words, and it literally means sheep poop. That's the cleaned up version. Um, there were a couple of uh, commentaries that I read. They just said it's very explicit language and they wouldn't touch it. He says, the thing that you've put in God's place is sheep dung, right? It's no good. And that, that's, that's, that's what he's saying. Whatever idol you put in there, it will, never, it, will never, it will never give you what you want. In fact, it's so slight that why would you ever go after it in the first place? So then the question becomes for you and me, who have we given ourselves to? Everyone gives themselves to something. The ancients walked into temples dedicated to the god of war, Ares, the god of sex, Aphrodite, the god of wealth, Platus, the god of healing, Apollo, the god of hunting, Artemis. I like that one. You know, there were some, the ducks are flying, but it's not duck season. The, god of, the goddess of hunting, uh, Artemis, the goddess of wisdom, Athena, the goddess of nature, Chloe, the god of wine, Dionysus, the goddess of love, Hera, and so on and so on. Different cultures have given these different names, but the idols of worship remain fairly consistent. If you look at the set of Greek gods that exist in other cultures, you'll find that they overlap. 
And they used to walk in to temples dedicated to that. They walked in and they said, I'm going to go worship the God of war. I'm going to go worship the God of sex. I'm going to go worship. And they went in and they did those things. We don't have buildings like that anymore. Uh, but today, if we don't offer, today we don't offer our, our, our God's temples with names on them, but turn on your TV and tell me who gets worshipped. Visit a, biggest, visit a big city and tell me who has the tallest and most grand buildings built for them. Next time you're in a big city, take a look at who has the biggest buildings. The list of charming and deceiving loves is long, and the name of the one who made you, knows you, and longs to bless you, and loves you, remains the same through the ages. There's a lot of charms out there, a lot of things that would try to charm you, but there's one who you're designed to have intimacy with. And that's Yahweh. I am that I am, the God of the Bible, who Jesus said that he was. When Jesus showed up, they asked him, who are you? And he said, I am. He uses I am multiple times. He, he came on the scene and he said, I am the God that you are designed to have intimacy with. And in fact, I am the God who would make himself vulnerable enough to demonstrate my love, vulnerable enough to be crushed on the cross, vulnerable enough to, to, to be broken into pieces. You can take a look at all the other religions out there. There's not one where God becomes vulnerable to love you like the God of the Bible. It's one of the many, many proofs that we look at and we go, this is the one true God. So who have you given yourself to? That really becomes the question, is who do I give myself to? Right, when man and woman stand, on, stand in front of everybody and they make that covenant and they say, I'm giving myself to you. It's a promise that they make to each other. We're, we are together. And it's the same thing. It's, a, it's the same decision that you make with a God. You may never stand in front of everybody and verbalize it, although that's what baptism is about. When you get baptized, it's a statement of I am pursuing Him. If you're a Christian and you haven't been baptized, that is your, that is your public proclamation. That is where your, your place where you say, much like a wedding, where you say, I am his and he is mine and my heart is after him. I will only follow after God. I will not put anything else there. But that's the question is who do you give yourself to? And there's no gray area here. There's not a nobody. I don't give myself to anyone. Well, that's, that's a statement of I'm autonomous and I can do this on my own and you've given yourself to yourself. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for those who made it up the hill here um, in, this, in this fun weather. Um, as, I, as I walked out, I thought, here we go again. But uh, God, we do thank you that we can gather. We thank you that we can worship you. Uh, I really enjoyed that time. It was kind of special um, to be able to hear the voices of everyone here. And uh, it's good to be together as a body of believers. God, I pray that we recognize that in some way or another, we all give ourselves to something or someone. The question is, what or who is that? And God, if it's you, you have promised that you will bless us. You have promised that you will give us life. You have promised that you will give us peace. You, you have promised that you will give us hope. You have promised that you will give us security. You have promised that you will give us eternity with you. And in the end, the thing, those who have given themselves to someone other than you, they will receive what they have sought after. You will give them over to what they've asked to be given to. 
So God, I pray that we would make you and you alone the most high in our lives. That if, that if we haven't made that dedication, if we haven't said, I will only pursue him in intimacy, I will only allow the God of the Bible to be the God of my life. I pray that we do that this morning. And God, I pray that you reveal the places to us where we're not doing that. Uh, my heart of hearts longs to be yours, but I also know that I'm frail and I'm just a human and I don't see everything. So I pray that you would reveal to me the places where I haven't given you all of my heart, where I am pursuing something else instead of you. And then, God, I pray that through your, the power of your Holy Spirit who lives within me, you would give me victory over those things. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.